Let's take our Bibles together this evening to the book of Ruth. Let's turn in God's Word together to the book of Ruth this evening. And we are beginning on this Sunday evening a new series, beginning to look into the Old Testament book of the book of Ruth. What we find when we come to the book of Ruth, chapter 1, verse 1, is dark times in the life of Israel. Dark times in the life of Israel. So tonight we will begin an introduction looking at verses 1 through 5, introducing the book of Ruth, and a family that God, by His Holy Spirit, draws our attention to in bringing our attention to a family in the middle of the days of the judges. So looking here into God's Word, Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land, And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Milan and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab, and they remained there. Verse 3, Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. Now they took the wives, they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpha, and the name of the other one was Ruth. And they dwelt there about ten years. Then both Milan and Kilian also died. So the woman survived her two sons and her husband. As we come to the book of Ruth, we find a book that is unique within the canon of Scripture. It's unique because it is one of two books in the Scriptures named after a woman. It's one of the smaller books, not only of the Scriptures, but it's one of the smallest books in the Old Testament, consisting of just a few chapters. You can easily Read it in a span of 15 minutes, 20 minutes, from beginning to end. It's a family that is a real family. This is the story of Ruth, and as we were talking about last week, while we know what we mean by stories, we want to make sure that we emphasize the fact that this is a real account of real people who existed in the ancient world within God's plan for His his people. This was a family that had to face hard decisions. All of us, as we look back into our lives and remember the different life stages that we've had, all of us have had to make decisions in our lives, decisions that seemed logical, uh, decisions that seemed expedient. But in reality, when we look back upon them, they were ones that were faithless. I just want to remind all of us as God's people that we are called to live by faith. We are called to walk by faith. Hebrews eleven six. without faith it is impossible to please him. You say, LeGrand, you quote that verse a lot. Oh, I absolutely do because I'm quoting it to myself. <laughs> I preach it to myself as we pray over as our elders lead this church. It's something we often re- remember ourselves. Without faith it is impossible to actually please, please God. Here we find a family that was faced with hard times and a hard decision. And they made a job change. They made a move. We find ourselves in our past, in our family's past, our history, where there was a decision made by a father, a decision made by a grandfather. We go back far enough. Decisions made by individuals in our family that we didn't know it at the time, but that decision had reverberating effects over the course of our lives. Now, that gives a sense of sobriety to all of us here this evening. It should give a sense of sobriety to the men of God here this evening, that our decisions don't just affect ourselves, but they affect our wives and our children, and they also affect future generations, the everyday, seemingly mundane decisions of life. Sometimes our decisions have had devastating consequences on our life. As we look here into the book of Ruth, we see a man and a family who made what was seemingly an inconsequential decision And it had devastating effects upon that family's life. But yet, 
we see the beauty of grace. We see the beauty of God's providential hand. Two things that we'll see as themes within the book of Ruth are this, the grace of God and the providence of God. The grace of God and yet also the providence of God. How God does not ordain or orchestrate sin, but yet God is able to take sinful decisions and use them for good. Now do not ask me to explain that. How God can take sinful decisions, disobedient decisions, and yet bring about his ultimate purpose and will for, the glo- for his glory and for our good. As we look into this dark, dark backdrop here in this account of the book of Ruth, we begin to see the grace of God. We begin to see also devastating consequences for the choices that are made. Very simply, as we introduce this book, number one, the author, number two, the audience, and then number three, the aim. So number one, the author. The human author is not designated for us as we come upon the book of Ruth. It's not said that in, that in anywhere that we have a hint of who it is written by. Many in Jewish tradition held to the fact that they believe that Samuel, the prophet, was the, the author. Jewish tradition tells us that, that Samuel was, but we don't know that for sure. Ruth chapter 1 verse 1 shows us that the context is the events of the story of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz. These are the individuals and then their sons. Malon and Kilion, moving in down through verse 7. But we see the phrase, in the days when the judges governed. So one thing we can understand regarding the setting is that this book is actually a zoomed-in account that took place in the previous book of the book of Judges. Now Samuel was one of the last of the judges, or the last of the judges, and he was actually the last prophet in charge of inaugurating both the first king of Israel and King Saul, and then also King David, 1 Samuel chapter 16, 1 Samuel chapter 10, who would then follow. And then moving, that would end the prophets or the line of the prophets and would move into the line of the kings. But the bottom line is, is that God did not see fit to give us the author. Oftentimes we want to begin there, who wrote this book. But that leads us to the divine author. And we understand that the divine author, of course, is God that he has superintended his word for us, his people, the church, the Gentiles, also for the Jews, for our learning and for our admonition. 2 Timothy 3.16 reminds us all scripture is inspired by God and it's profitable for teaching, reproof, and correction. 2 Peter 1.20, but know this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act, notice here, an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit who spoke from God. So we have the assurance of Scripture that what we have here is the Word of God. And we're going to find later on as we get into the book of the Ruth, its significance and its importance and how precious it is as, we, as it points us to the Messiah, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So the author. Secondly, the audience. Of course, the original audience was a Jewish audience. This is clear from chapter 1 and verse 1, the way the sentence structure is given to us, the emphasis that is placed upon when this took place, the many references to Yahweh in the, book of, in the book of Ruth, it reminds us that this was written for a Jewish audience, an audience that lived in a different era than when the judges judged in Israel, but also within the specific context of that time as well. In chapter 4, verse 17, we find that this audience was, of course, familiar with David. They understood and were concerned about his lineage. As this author gives, points us to the fact of the significance and importance of Ruth and her role within the lineage of the Messiah. How it, he, that it would be the seed of promise, chapter 4, verse 12, fulfilling what God promised to his people that he would send a Messiah. And then, of course, there's not only the original audience, God's people, the Jews, But then there's us as well, the current audience, all those who take up God's word, who read God's word. Friends, be comforted in this fact that God has lessons here for me and for you, for us, for us as people right here at Grace Church. God has superintended his word for his people. As we look into the book of Ruth, it was written for our instruction and for the instruction of New Testament believers as well. We will find truths within this little book that will strengthen us that will encourage us, that will reprove us, that will rebuke us, that will correct us. Romans chapter 15, verse 4, we saw last week together that 
For whatever was written in the earlier times, Paul says, these things, the book of Ruth, insert here, these things were written for our instruction so that through perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures that we, notice here, might have hope. Anytime we read God's word, we're reading it not just as something disconnected from ourselves or our families, but we're asking the Lord who he is in this passage in the scripture. We're asking, how does this point us to Christ? How does this strengthen our faith in God? How does this build our hope? Because that is the purpose of the Old Testament, Paul writes, Romans 15, verse 4, that we might have hope. 1 Corinthians 10, 11, he also says, Now, these things happen aforetime. They happen as an example that they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Grace Church, as we look into the book of Ruth and study these characters and chronicle God's hand in their life, don't view it as something in the past alone or something removed from us, but understand that God has lessons for us to learn as well. And may the Lord give us insight to be able to see those things and to learn those things as we grow in our faith and as we grow in our understanding. And then number three, we see the aim. I want to go through some things that I believe the book of Ruth will teach us, that are pointing us to, ultimately, what are some of those things that give us hope in God, that remind us that God has been faithful to them, and therefore He will be faithful to us? What are those things that are for our learning and for our admonition? Well, there's going to be many things, but some things that I think we'll find is the aim. What is the purpose of this book? Well, just to get to the heart of it, we'll find in Matthew chapter 1, in Luke chapter 1, the only time Ruth is mentioned in the New Testament serves as a powerful and an important reminder that she, in God's sovereignty, has a role in the birth of the Messiah. She will have a role in the lineage of Christ, pointing us to the sovereign grace of God when no one deserves it. Pointing to the fact that God is glorious in his display of divine mercy and grace to those who deserve it the least. And it, friends, it's going to be a reminder to all of us that God and his gift of salvation is so glorious. May we never, ever, ever move toward the realm of pride as we think about salvation, but always be humbled, bowed low, filled with praise and gratitude, singing praises to the King of Kings that he would ever have mercy upon us, the least of these. I hope you understood what I just said right there. May we never be filled with pride. Many times, for whatever reason, in the sinfulness of flesh, people are moved to that. Listen, may we always be humbled and say all glory be to Christ. Well, what are some of the aims of the book of Ruth? Well, one, to reveal God's grace and loyal love to even not only the believing remnant, but even the unbelieving remnant in spite of Israel's unfaithfulness. Chapter 2, verse 20, we were reminded, Naomi says to Ruth, May he be blessed of the Lord, who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead. God's grace, his loyal love to his people, extends even beyond both faithfulness and unfaithfulness. The aim of the book of, the Ruth, book of Ruth also is to reveal God's sovereignty in furthering his purposes in spite of his people's covenant unfaithfulness. We will be able to look at times and truly echo Joseph and say what men meant for evil or what men decided sinfully God was able to take, God was able to do for good. And again, it points us back to the divine mystery of God's providence in everyday affairs and choices that people make and how he takes these and redeems these things for his glory. The aim of Ruth is to reveal the character of true faith and the love of Yahweh and his sovereign grace to his people. Chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, and also verses 15 through 17. Maybe most poignantly, the aim of Ruth is to reveal a portrait of redemption. A portrait, an example of what salvation looks like. Chapter 2, verse 12. Chapter 3, verse 12. Chapter 4, verse 9. Redemption to buy back those who do not deserve it in one sense, and yet God has patterned a way for his people to be redeemed. 
We'll see how the truth or the precept of the kinsman redeemer points us to Christ. How we, not in the sense of Boaz is the true and greater, that Jesus is the true and greater Boaz, but in Boaz's actions, we see it points us to Christ who comes and comes into human flesh. He comes down and lives among us to buy us back as our kinsman redeemer. So as we look at this account, we'll find that it's, it's not just a story that's isolated. It, it is a love story. There's no, no doubt about that. But that love story is not to be limited to what we think about love, right? It's to point us to the redeeming love of God and actually redefines what true biblical love should be and ultimately what it is. Another aim that I think we'll find in this book is that it shows us that even a Gentile can receive God's salvation in a time to where that was very, very rare. We see that God had mercy upon Ruth when he had pronounced judgment upon her people because of their unfaithfulness, because of their wickedness, because of their actions against the God, against Yahweh, the God of Israel. There are many things. I have a long list. I'll just give you one more. What is also another aim that I think we'll find here in the book of Ruth is to show us there is always a remnant of those who believe, even in times of deep, great, or dark apostasy. God always has a people. And what we find is in the Old Testament, in the darkest of times, in the most wicked of times, God, by His Spirit, regularly draws our attention to show us He always has a remnant. He always has a remnant. And then lastly, an aim that I think we'll see fulfilled in the book of Ruth is how we see God's sovereign plan of redemption continues on through the seed of the woman, the Messiah, ultimately being brought about, no matter the apparent state or wickedness of the world. God superintends the coming of the Messiah. He superintends the promise that he will send a redeemer. So as we look into the book of Ruth, number one, I want us to note right off the opening verses that we read here, verses 1 through 5, Immediately, the way the verses are constructed for us uh, is, is very dark. It's very painful. And the first thing that we see is the pain of covenant faithlessness among the people of God. Covenant faithlessness, an empty profession in verses 1 through 5. And the first thing that we see is our attention is drawn to is the faithlessness actually of the nation. The faithlessness of the nation, verse 1. Now, it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. Now, this is a real story. Fictional stories often begin with once upon a time. You know, we often will begin a, a story that way. Well, here the author is giving us a real account. Now it came to pass that in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. Now, just note the significance of our attention immediately being brought to the fact that there is a famine, notice, in the land of plenty. Don't let that be gone on you. Now, we see here that when the judges rule, this connects back to literally the book of Judges. So I'm not going to have us walk through the book of Judges tonight. But as I mentioned this morning, when you begin to read through the book of Judges, you see the depravity of man displayed. You see wickedness. It's a book of horror, for lack of better words. We see cannibalism, we see murder, we see uh, people cut to pieces and mailed to all the tribes of Israel. We see rapes, we see all types of just iniquity and horrendous acts of God's people. And that is what the author signals for us when the judges rule. This means this is the time of great abandonment, this is a time of apostasy, this is a time of chaos, a time of disobedience, a time of gross sin. By the way, it's a time like we live in today. Lest we look back in this, this time of the book of Judges and say, my goodness, what a wicked time. Well, friend, look no further than America. This is a wicked time that we live in as well. Judges chapter 17 verse 6 and chapter 21 verse 25 both give us really the theme of this days of the judges in this. In those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. So what we find here is that this is a time where men are not only dishonoring God, they're not honoring any authority that is placed over them. Does that sound familiar? 
any form of authority, any status of authority is, is falling on hard times. And it's not um, wrongly earned. When we, when we look to our leaders, there's not much to look to. When we look at those who are supposed to be the representation of God to us, we think of, of governors and rulers in the land. We think of pastors today. We just think about the state of leadership in America. It's on sad times, absolutely sad times. Well, this is the day that this family finds themselves in. And we notice here the famine in the land points us to the fact that also that the fact that, that God was being faithful to judge his people. How so? Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and Leviticus 26, God gave a promise to his people. He, he told them that he would bring them into the land of promise. But those promises that God promised he would guide and lead his people were conditional. They must love him. They must serve him and him alone. They must not turn aside to other gods. They must walk by faith and not by sight. And Israel constantly wavered from this admonition. So the fact that Ruth chapter 1 begins with that there was a famine in the land points us to the fact that God's chastening hand is upon his people. When the judges ruled connects us back to judges, of course. But what we find here is that God is being faithful. Leviticus chapter 26 verse 19, this is what he says. He says, I will also break down your pride of power. When you turn away from me and live by the flesh, when you do not walk by faith and when you walk by sight, when you turn aside to other gods, God says, this is what I will do to you, my people. I love you. What does God's chastening love look like? Well, friends, to grow in our parenting, to grow in our shepherding, to grow in all these things, look no further than the shepherding of God. Look no further than the promises of God that he loves his people. And true love perfects. True love chastens. True love does not pamper and abandon. But today, when you look around, that's what true love looks like, according to the world, according to modern values. Let the kids be the kids. Let them do whatever they want to do. Let them go, do what they want to do. Here we see God says, listen, I will break down your pride of power. I will also make your sky like iron and your earth like bronze. Notice your strength, verse 20 of Leviticus 26, your strength will be spent uselessly, for your land will not yield its produce and the trees of the land will not bear their fruit. Now, don't forget, God has promised to bring his people into the promised land. Remember, Joshua told them at the end of the book of Joshua, uh, chapter 24, listen, children of Israel, choose you this day whom you will serve, whether it be the God of Israel, who's been faithful to us, who's brought us out of the land of Egypt, or the gods of the Canaanites, the, gods, the false gods of those who surround us. This was a constant choice brought before the people of God, whether to walk by faith in God and His promises and His ordinances and His worship and to trust that He would bless them as they honored Him, that He would reward them, provide for them, or that they would go with what is seen. They would go towards other gods that they could see, that they, it was better for them to bow down to the God of their neighbors and to believe and to pretend that that God would provide for their crops and give a harvest, provide for their needs, give bread, etc. What we find here is that this is the time of the book of Judges. This is the time where there is every man doing that which is right in his own eyes. And there is, verse 1, a famine in the land. This famine signifies for us that God has brought judgment upon his people. Again, if you're asking that why question, just go back to the previous book, and you'll quickly find the answer to why God has brought this judgment. I'll just make another point here as an aside. God's judgment always comes after long seasons that are given for repentance, giving God's people a chance to repent. God's judgment, when it comes, it does come swift, but before it comes swift, He gives opportunity for returning again to the Lord again and again. Time does not allow us to walk through the Old Testament. I'd love to do that. To look at the passages where God tells his people, return to me and I will return to you. Repent. Turn in repentance. Turn away from your gods. He gives seasons for these things to happen. And the chronicling of God's people is constant turning to God and then wandering from God. Turning to God and then growing faithless and wandering away from God. 
Looking again in verse 1, we find that our attention is drawn again to a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah. The Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. Now the mention of Bethlehem in Judah here in verse 1 and the Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah in verse 2 reminds the audience as they heard the teaching of the book of Ruth, it reminds them of God's purposes. It reminds them also of what has taken place previously. Judges chapter 17 verse 7 points us back to the bleak account of what was believed to be Moses' grandson, a Levite who also lived in Bethlehem who actually became an idolatrous priest for the Danites. If you want further background information, you can see Judges chapter 17 and 18. This is notable because it points us to the fact that the last time we see this mentioned in Scripture, the place of Bethlehem, the Ephrathites, I have trouble saying that, was that we are pointed to Moses' grandson who basically was a priest, a Levite, who sold out. He was bought out for clothing, For money, money and clothing were given to him, food was given to him, so that he would be a particular priest unto the nobles of the land. But in doing that, he sold out his loyalty to God. He was bought. You could say it like this. Oftentimes the phrase says this, every man has a price. Well, this man had a price. And so as we look at this emphasis of the background, the entrance of Bethlehem, everything mentioned in these first two verses here in the book of Ruth, is an introduction, it points us to the faithfulness, unfaithfulness, excuse me, the faithlessness of the covenant people of Israel. Three phrases again, in the days when the judges governed. Secondly, there was a famine in the land. And then the pointing to the notorious town of Bethlehem in Judah, as we see it introduced here at the beginning of the book of Ruth. So covenant faithlessness as a nation. Secondly, notice faithlessness as a family. Here is a family, verses 1 and 2, a certain man. This is not a group of people. This is not a tribe. This is not a band of brothers. This is one man who says, I'm not going to stay here till we die. I'm not going to stay here in Bethlehem, a certain man of Bethlehem. He resolves that in these hard times, he's going to get out and he's going to find a way to provide for his family. Now, be careful before you say, well, what's wrong with that. What's wrong with that? Well, Bethlehem, let me remind you, remind all of us, is called the house of bread. The meaning of Bethlehem is it is the house of bread. It is a fertile area, a fertile region within Israel and Judah. But this famine is God's hand of judgment brought upon his people. And it reaches a point that a resident of Bethlehem and Judah would leave this house of bread to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. Well, here's the point I want to make. Instead of asking, well, what's wrong with that? We need to ask ourselves, what should they have done? If this famine was brought about as one of the promises of God, of bringing famine and judgment upon his people, well, one of the things we need to understand is the background. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 1. God tells his people that when he brings judgment upon them, When the seasons do come, that that God brings a heavy hand of judgment upon his people, the purpose of that judgment is not cruelty, it's love. And the purpose of that chastening hand is that they are to repent and return. As I mentioned before, Deuteronomy 30 verse 1, God says this to his people, So shall it be when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, And you call them to mind in all nations where the Lord your God has banished you. Verse 2, and you return to the Lord your God, and you obey him with all your heart and soul, according to all that I command you today, you and your sons, notice the emphasis here, you and your sons, those who come after you. Then the Lord, your God, will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you. And will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Part of those promises that God gives to his people is not only if you wander, if you abandon me, will I bring judgment upon you. But he also gives the promise, if you repent and return, I will gather you again. And I will restore you again. And I will bless you again. This isn't hard. This stuff isn't hard. Then why do we struggle with sin so much? Amen? So what we find here is the response should be, well, what's wrong with them going to Moab? 
what we find is what should they have done? And according to Scripture, they should have repented not only as a family, not only putting the stake down, as for me, Elimelech, as for me and my house, we will not be influenced by the crowd. We'll, we're going to serve the Lord, even if that means we're the only ones serving the Lord. And the comfort is, is we're never the only ones serving the Lord. God in his kindness and grace always has iron, who sharpens iron surrounding us at all times. Friends, count your blessings in the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord for the godly people he brings into your life who love you, who pray for you, who sharpen you, who bring friction to your character, who will call you out when they see you slipping or not leading well in your family. Listen, Elimelech needed such a brother, and it doesn't appear that he had it. Instead, Elimelech, instead of repenting and actually being a spearhead to lead the people of God in a, in a national repentance, our text here tells us he went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The act very well may have been a practical questioning of God's faithfulness. Or God's goodness. If God would not provide for them in the land that he had promised them, then he would go somewhere else. And he would be better to his family than God would be to them. Faithlessness as a family. Well, how else is it seen? How else is this faith, faithlessness seen as a family? Well, notice where they go. They go to a land, a country, entitled called Moab. Moab was a nation that was east of Israel on the other side of the Jordan and the Dead Sea area. We find that in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 48. But Moab, of all the places that he would take his family to, not Moab. Moab was the arch enemy of the nation of Israel. The beginning of Moab began, if you remember, back in Genesis chapter 19, verse 30, when Lot had incest with his oldest daughter, was recorded there in that passage, also Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 9, but a sin that, of course, was gross and evil and wicked. But in the sight of God, the name Moab literally means from the father. So literally the, Moabs, uh, the Moabites would be the source of God's judgment, the source of God's condemnation, and they would continue to be a thorn in the side of Israel. They would constantly not be a friend to Israel, but an enemy to Israel. And so God promises judgment upon them. In fact, the book of Judges says that the nation of Moab also oppressed Israel during the days of the Judges. Judges chapter 3, uh, verse 12, all the way down through verse 30. It gives a description of their not being a friend to the people of God, but an enemy and oppressing them. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 3 says that a Moabite was forbidden to even enter the assembly of Yahweh. Even, notice here, to the tenth generation. This is how God felt about the Moabites, the nation of Moab. So all of these factors suggest strongly that this certain man, Elimelech, who left Israel to sojourn in Moab, here's the point, he indeed acted faithlessly. This is an expedient decision. This is an individual choice, and his wife and his two sons followed as tagalongs. Just want to remind us, fathers, before we make decisions, let's, let's seek the Lord in prayer, of course. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, lean not into your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your path. This morning, after the service, I prayed with the Father who was worshiping with us and just asking, in a time of transition, asking God uh, that God would give clarity to their steps, that He would lead them in a path that would be clear. So as I pray with people, one of the first things that I say as a pastor is, can I pray with you? Can I just pray over you for a moment? Yes. So we pray. One of the things you will hear me pray, some of you I've prayed it over you just in, as I've had opportunity, is, Lord, would you help us to ponder the path of our feet, as the book of Proverbs calls us to, I believe Proverbs chapter 10, to consider our ways. The decision that, that we, particularly as I'm giving application here to the men of the home, as we make this decision for our family, where will this decision lead a year from now, a month from now, a year from now, five years from now, ten years from now? Yes, but I have a job opportunity. Yes, but a door has opened. Yes, but uh, there's a green light over here. I get that. How will that affect you? How will that affect your wife? How will that affect your children? 
What are the, 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 the circumstantial evidences that you feel that God is leading you in a, a plain path? Do your elders know about that? Are they praying for you with that? Are you simply making an expedient decision for bread? What is the Lord trying to teach you right now in this season of difficulty? What is a lesson that you may not be seeing? What is a blind spot that you may not have that you're absolutely blind to, but friends could come along and and help guide you and give you wise counsel to? Friends, men particularly, I'm speaking to this evening, may the Lord caution us and may the Lord help us to give wisdom and seasons of prayer before we make major decisions that are not faithful decisions, but actually just prove faithlessness and our almighty God, our covenant-keeping God, Yahweh, the Lord. I'm afraid that many of the decisions that we make, as I've said at the beginning, are not decisions that are made in faith, saying, God, we don't understand, but yet we feel like in very clear ways you are leading us in a, this plain path. And once you commit to that, you're saying, we're going to trust you. We're going to look to you for provision. We're going to ask that you provide and glorify your great name through us. Well, one thing we can say for sure, Elimelech didn't pray that prayer. And also, going to Moab was not God's will for his people at this, at this time. Notice with me, verse 2, the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi. Have you ever met someone whose name and the meaning of their name was ironic or irony? For example, someone whose name was Hope, and they have no hope. They're regularly in despair. Or someone whose name is Joy, and they never seem to have uh, any joy. You get what I mean? The obvious name and the meaning of the name, and yet, it's interestingly enough, it doesn't correlate. Well, that's exactly what we find here with Elimelech and Naomi. The name of the man was Elimelech. The name of his wife, the woman, was Naomi. Elimelech, his name means, my God is king. Literally, my God is the sovereign. Yet when we look at his decisions, he is denying that very truth that is found uh, in his name. Hey, Elimelech. Hey, I'm sorry as he comes into Moab. Hey, I notice you're new here. What's your name, uh, Elimelech? What's that mean? My God is king. Oh, really? So why are you coming here? Well, we have no bread. Where do you live? Bethlehem. Isn't that called the house of bread? Yeah, absolutely. Listen, he was a living testimony, not of his faithfulness to God, but his faithlessness in his almighty sovereign God. Naomi, what is the meaning of her name? In Hebrew, it means delightful. It means sweet. It means pleasant. Really? When we read the book of Ruth in one sitting, I'll say this for sure. If I had not told you that, you'll never associate those words, at least at the beginning of the book of Ruth as we see that she is a very bitter woman. Chapter 1, verse 20, we find that her response to the loss of her husband and the loss of her sons is one of understandable despair, one of understandable pain and sorrow. In fact, as they come back into the homeland of Bethlehem, she tells her friends, her former acquaintances, she says, do not call me Naomi. When they're saying, wait, isn't this Naomi? What's happened? Where has she been? Didn't she go to Moab? And she says, no, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Verse 2 tells us that the names of the two sons of Elimelech and Naomi, as we introduce these characters of this account, the first one was Milan and the second Kilion. They were Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. Now, this helps us to kind of understand a little bit of a timeline of what is taking place as we are introduced to this family. Milan, it's believed, means to be weak or sick. So we can maybe have an idea that Elimelech and Naomi are married, and somewhere in the course of the beginning of their marriage, a famine begins to take place before the sons are born. In the midst of this famine, as we look at a timeline throughout the book of Ruth, this is not a, a sudden decision that they make. This is a decision that's made after a period of time. They have their first son, and they name him Milan, which means what? Now, why did you name him Milan? It means weak or sick. So maybe this baby was born prematurely. Maybe he was born by, as a miracle baby, sometimes we call them. But the idea is one, not of strength, but very weak or sick. And then Kilion, which means to come to an end, uh, mortality. 
Neither one of these names is very inspiring. They're named after their circumstances. They're named, it shows and points us back to the, the perception and the perspective of these parents. They're struggling. And they're, they're doubting it, whether their sons will even make it out of this famine alive. They understand that they don't have much food to give. They're starving themselves. And they're struggling with the providence and the purposes of God. When we look there at verse 2, it tells us, And they went to the country of Moab, and then notice the phrase, And they remained there. In, in other words, this is not just a quick trip. This is not to get bread and then to come back home. In fact, this word, they went into the country, the word for country means a field. They went and they found a field, and they remained there at that field, looking for a way to live and survive. And they dwelled there, they lived there. Elimelech went and left the promised land to find his field in the land of Moab. Remember, God gave all of his people, the 12 tribes of Israel, plots of land that was theirs generationally. It would come back to them after the 50th year. We find that even when Naomi returns back to Bethlehem, there is her former property that needs to be redeemed. There is matters to be dealt with. It's a matter that Boaz then brings before the, kid, the next closest relative when he inquires of whether or not that relative, we don't have his name, will redeem uh, Ruth and her land. So as we look here, we see this theme, the theme that we have laid. It's a dire theme. I get that. If you were looking to be inspired on this first message of the book of Ruth, unfortunately, as we follow Scripture, there's not lots of inspiration here. But it does paint the scene for us. And it's a very dire scene. In fact, we'll conclude as we look into verses 3 through 5 that tragedy and life change quickly begin to enter in into Moab. One bad decision leads to other tragic circumstances. Notice with me verse 3. First of all, Naomi's husband died. The Bible tells us, Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. I'm going to read that again, and I want you to feel the weight of it. Then, verse 3, then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. Let's just take that into account just for a moment. There are people in this room, you've lost your spouse. You've lost your husband. You've lost your wife. And that is a pain of sorrow that you would not wish upon anyone. And yet, we understand it happens in this life. Let's get this straight. Elimelech leads his family to a pagan people the chosen enemy of God, and then Elimelech dies. That's what we go back to, the wisdom of decisions that we're making. When I move my family here, who will influence my family? Who will be our friends? Who will encourage us and strengthen us in the things of God? Where will we worship? You'd be shocked. In my pastoral ministry, one of the things I was trained in in, in seminary was always counsel the people of God before they make major life decisions, tell them and cause them to give consideration of where they will worship. You'd be surprised at the amount of little thought that people give into that. They just make a decision and they say, we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out later. Well, listen, also that God is kind. God is kind in how he leads his people. Let's not, let's not miss that as well. But on the front end of those types of decisions, that's a major consideration. Hey, Dad, consider this. You may get there, and you may die the second you get there. Y'all know that's morbid. I know that's whatever. But that's what happens here. Then Elimelech, her husband, died. And then, secondly, she was left with her two sons. Remember? Sick and about to die. That's, that's their names. This leads us to all types of questions. How did he die? Why did he die? When did he die? We want more information. But notice how the Holy Spirit just moves away from that. And from this moment on, Elimelech is no longer on the scene. Now the focus is upon Naomi and then Ruth. So first of all, the first life change situation that takes place is Elimelech dies. Secondly, Naomi's sons married Moabite women. That's another decision to consider. As we move to this place, as we counsel and guide our children... We need to understand that in this phase of life, or as we're counseling our children where to go to school, we're thinking about next step decisions. Give counsel, give wide, varied counsel to understand when we make this decision, here's some factors that we need to take into consideration. Namely this, Naomi should have said to Elimelech, hey honey, let me ask you a question. If we go to Moab, who will our sons marry? So here's the idea. It's believed in the timeline of, of this passage that they move at, after about 10 years 
The boys are about 10 years of age. They then move to Moab. By the time we are introduced in this early text that they then get married, it's obvious that they are within marrying age, so maybe another 10 years. Within this time and culture of Israel, it's hard to nail down because in early Israel, a man was a man not based upon his numeric age, but by, by maturity and responsibility. So the question would go like this. Hey, Dad, I want to get married. Oh, really? Yes, I'm in love with this girl down the street. Oh, okay. Well, so, Dad, I want to marry her. So may I ask for a hand in marriage? Well, let me ask you this, son. Can you provide for a family? Can you build a house? Are you a spiritual leader of your home? Are you able to fight for your nation? Those were the metrics for whether or not a man was married, not 18 or 21, as we think today. So we can consider the fact that these boys, about 10 years later, somewhere along the way, they marry. And then no sooner do they marry, notice here, they marry Moabite women. Verse 4, Now they took wives of the women of Moab, and the name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. And they dwelt there about ten years. So then, second major life change decision is Naomi has two pagan daughter-in-laws. Two pagan daughter-in-laws. Now you say, LeGrand, why do you say they're pagan? Well, we'll see here decisions that one daughter-in-law makes to stay with her people, to stay with her gods. Then the decision of the other, Ruth, who comes to faith in the God, Yahweh, of Israel. The third thing that we see in this text is that Naomi's sons then die, and she's left as a remnant out of the two children and her husband that she came to the land of Moab with. Verse 5, notice, then Milan and Kilion also died, so the woman survived her two sons and her husband. As we come to the close of this, just this introductory message, kind of setting the scene of, of these characters, it's a reminder to all of us to look to God. It's a reminder to all of us to give praise to Him for how He is not only working in our lives, but how He's worked in the past. And I'm curious, lest anybody ever get discouraged about your story or how things have worked in the past. You know, we're often too nailed down to the moment. How many of you, I'm just curious, have done some genealogy studies? You've spent some time going back in your history and you spent some time learning who was our granddad and our, and our great-granddad. And we now have technology and abilities to do blood testing and all those types of things and to trace our family heritage and lineage. And we often have hopes in that, don't we? We want to take pride in our family history. We, there's a sense where we understand that. But what we find is that there's things not to take pride in. <laughs> there's things to, to be ashamed of. Now, I'm not going to waste time here tonight. Maybe in personal conversation we could tell some stories. I'm not going to do that here at the pulpit. But the lambs have done that. And I'll just say by confessional experience, instead of being filled with pride about our staunch family heritage, what we have found as we've studied our family lineage is church disciplines, uh, alcoholism, uh, imprisonment, all types of things that my point is simply this, not to anything really to be um, filled with pride about. But... As we look back and trace God's hand, and I'm sure as you can as well, regardless of the decisions great-grandfathers have made, and regardless of sinful decisions, wise decisions, one of the beautiful things about doing that is you're able to trace God's providential hand in your life. What a beautiful thing. And here's what I want us to close with this evening on this first message is simply this. Rejoice in God's grace in your life today. Rejoice in the fact that God is not limited to the bad decisions of the Malon in your life or those types of things, but how God has worked to bring people in your family to repentance, how God has redeemed and worked in your story. Because that's what we find here. This is a story within a larger story. Theologians and biblicists and historians call this, there's a narrative. The narrative here is of the story of Ruth and Naomi. But it's within the greater meta-narrative, within the story of the redemptive passage of, of God's unfolding drama of redemption. Now, not to over-personalize the text, but just to fill your heart with hope and encouragement. May the Lord lead you by His Spirit to reflect upon your own story and to understand that God is working in the lives of all His people to bring them to Himself. So give praise to God that He's worked in your life, that He's called you to salvation. Much of what God has done in your family's story and heritage is to bring you to himself. 
So when we think about the bad decisions and the sin and the past mistakes, friend, don't dwell there, but run to Christ. Give praise to God for his sovereignty is what his providence is what we call is his sovereignty worked out in the everyday choices, conversations, mundane things of life. That's why we call it his providence. He has provided. He has worked. Listen, we are a covenant people. We are a people of faith. And may God help us to shine as people who are faithful, who walk by faith and not by sight. Now, in our account, as we come back to the book of Ruth, everything's going to shift as we move from this doom and gloom to mystery, choices. How is the Lord going to work? Is there a plan? Is there a God? Can God redeem this bitterness? Can God redeem this awful situation for his glory and our good? And the hopeful message is absolutely yes. Well, let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we love you. And we thank you for your word and we pray that you would give us just insight as a church as we, on our own throughout this week, no doubt, read the book of Ruth, study the book of Ruth. But as we come together as God's people, we pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us, that you would help us to see Christ in all of the scriptures. You would help us to see how every story whispers your name, points us to Christ and how the scriptures testify of Jesus. Father, we love you. And as we conclude hearing the teaching of your word, we want to give you praise as we think about our own accounts. We think of those in our family's past, even ourselves, Lord, who've made bad decisions. And yet in your kindness, you've given repentance and renewal and grace. And you've brought us back to yourself. And you're working even in the here and now through us, Father, as your people, as we declare from one generation to another and hand down our faith to those who come behind us. Father, truly, may all who come behind us, would they find us faithful walking as people of faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please you. So we pray that you would give us strength, draw our eyes to look to you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Just a general reminder that uh, this Wednesday, kind of things return back to normal uh, and Grace Church.